Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the final weekly update of 5774. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. You're really not on next week? Yeah, believe it or not. I'll be on in Staten Island if you want to come out and hear Musaf. But then you'd have to come out for, then you'd have to come out for three days, right? And the Verrazano and all that, you know, if you're actually going to walk it, that would be a problem. Have you, have you yet revealed where you'll be for Rosh Hashanah? What your plans are? I'll be in Woodcliffe Lake. Woodcliffe, that's New Jersey? That is. You'll be in New Jersey this coming Rosh Hashanah. So that was some year 5774, wasn't it? still is, yes. uh, It seems to be one of those years that's not going out with a whimper, but until the last minute, going to continue to give us surprises. Now, and I like to emphasize that, uh, and it's interesting, I visited a couple of communities over the last few weeks. I am impressed by the security at some of the larger synagogues in our metropolitan area on Shabbos morning, and I'm assuming that in many places that will continue, obviously, for the high holidays, and as we like to point out, you always reassure us that those who are, uh, are responsible for our safety and take it very seriously in places like New York and New Jersey are on full alert, so to speak, with the high holiday season in full swing. It's true, not just in New York and New Jersey, in, in many parts of the country, I think there's a new seriousness, and given the threats and the fact that uh, ISIS and others uh, have said they will take uh, the attacks abroad and that uh, there have been Groups discovered. Uh, there was a group uh, in Denmark recently in the last week, and others that uh, are linked to, to these threats. So we take it seriously, and the shuls and the communities have to take it seriously. And uh, if we see something, say something. Don't hesitate. It's better to be wrong than sorry. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, I was reading before the Scotland vote was uh, revealed, and uh, the results was, you know started pouring in. That it would be, and, and explain this to me, because it seems like, I mean, I always emphasize this, how, how, it, how it's all about, uh, you know, for us, the effect on Israel and, you know, good for the Jews, bad for the Jews. Apparently, uh, a secession from the U.K. by Scotland, which is now not going to be the case, was viewed as bad for Israel. Could you explain that? Well, secession, no, number one, it brings uh, elements of uh, that, that are not determinable now. Second, the government of, uh, of Scotland has tended to be quite anti-Israel. It's a very liberal left uh, orientation, uh, and uh, people were concerned about the kind of government that would emerge. They've made statements that are very disturbing over the, in the past, not during the necessarily particularly concerned. And I know that many people in schools around the world were concerned and uh, and could you explain why, especially with the type of government or the type of um, citizenry that you just described in Scotland, why didn't the vote go through? From a political science point of view, why was it uh, shot down yesterday? Well, I think we'll find out as they do assessments and, and more of the exit polling is analyzed. But they successfully, I think, scared a lot of the older people that their financial situation would be jeopardized and their exclusion from the EU, that they would not be given membership and that they would um, face uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, You know, the nationalistic feelings were were great. The fact that they got 46% of the vote is not something that would have been predicted before. And uh, the amount of fervor that was uh, expressed and continues to be expressed even after the defeat 
but saying that this is not over, not likely to be a vote again. As uh, the Prime Minister of England said in this generation, some said in a lifetime, but it, it has unleashed something which uh, I think is not going to be going away so quickly, and, and the government of England is going to have to deliver uh, on the promises about greater autonomy for Scotland and greater control over their own dealings, especially wow. economic. Fascinating, especially in light of how long they've been together. Uh, since when did Al-Qaeda, or ISIS in this case, uh, establish a presence in Australia? Australia has been a target for a long time uh, of Muslim immigration, including terrorists. They've, they've been on the alert for uh, quite a while. Uh, but it's it's not just Australia. Australia is visible right now, but we've seen it uh, popping up in Brussels. You saw it with the attack on the museum in France. We've seen it in, uh, as I said, in Denmark or Sweden, other places where the uh, alerts have gone out, people being warned about uh, the growth of this of ISIS presence, but it's and and you can you add to that Hezbollah, which has a, a worldwide uh, footprint, and you have uh, Hamas, which has presence in other places, not as much, and uh, none of it I think is comparable to Hezbollah, which I think is is probably the largest. But Al Qaeda, in its in its um, new incarnation or continuing uh, presence, is is not centrally located, and they are not as territorial. They didn't look to capture territory. ISIS, uh, ISIL, ICE, uh, <laughs> it goes to to move to, to, to control specific areas and focused first in Syria, then in, in uh, Iraq, and, and trying to consolidate their hold on greater and greater amount of territory. We see it this week in Yemen, which, as you know, I discussed on the show People, I'm sure, glazed over and asking where Yemen was. They didn't know it still existed. They had heard about it many years ago. Well, what I talked about a couple of weeks ago took place this week. The the Houthis, who are a terrorist organization, uh, they're Zaydi Shiites, supported by Iran, a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran, I would say, who for years have been the proxy in the Iranian-Saudi war, attacking Saudis across the border. The Saudis have bombed the border with Yemen many times, have... Uh, taken raids against uh, the Houthis. Well, they have moved into the capital. They're now on a street called Dalatin, which is a, a major thoroughfare going into the capital, and they've been holding protests and have, like, protest cities in, inside the capital to topple the government. They now control the whole area from the capital, Sana, to the Saudi border. Now, if you're sitting in Saudi Arabia and you see this, this has to be very unsettling, and that it gives Iran the foothold that it wants in the Arabian Peninsula, so it can go against Oman next, but most importantly, you have the Straits, and it and controlled by Bab al-Mandab, which is part of, of Yemen. They could control, together with Somalia, which was on the other side, and also a, a radical t- uh, Islamist regime, but the shipping where, where 60 or 70 percent of the oil to the West goes through. And everything coming from the, uh, the Gulf area. Are there any Arab states that would like to see them? Uh, I mean, I'm sure many would like to see them stop this infiltration into places like Yemen. But there's nobody who can go ahead and control them at this point. Well, they are an, they are a tribe that has been there. But you also have the tribal groups in Yemen, who are now more Muslim Brotherhood oriented, who were fighting before. But the the Houthis have managed to. Uh, 
uh, fight off the, the, the counter-response. The, the Yemeni's army seems to be very, very weak. Now they're negotiating with the Houthis. Uh, officials are, are negotiating with them. Uh, they have surrounded a lot of the institutions of the Sunni Islam party, including taking university, the TV station. Uh, dozens have been killed in the past few days. And again, people have to understand the significance of each of these things, that what, what hardly gets any coverage, Iran gets coverage, and everybody understands Iraq's big country, oil, etc. Yemen is a critical country, too, and it gets no coverage. And the expansion of the Islamist influence, and uh, in, not only in the Middle East, but in Africa today, in other parts of the world. So your question you know, is an important one that people see the spread and how the tentacles are reaching out globally. Wow. Look I'm... at the reports about Texas, from Midland, Texas, the police chief, and you can buy, you don't have to buy it, but look at the reports about uh, the area in on the Mexican-Texas border, uh, Ciudad Juarez, I think it's called, and, and they talk about the Islamists, how IS has a presence there. <laughs> Um, I'm just, you know what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm obviously looking at a map uh, to see what you're describing on the border of the turn it upside down on the border of the Arabian Sea. Right. I, it, it's unbelievable. You control that area. You control everything essentially. It's critically important. Uh, by the way, I started with Australia, for, and I'm sure you understand why, because you know the common folk, including myself. You know, as much as we've seen uh, Europe become overrun, and obviously we know about the presence in uh, South America, and you continue to describe what's going on in the United States, we've always had this impression, like if there's going to be, you know, th- that Muslim radicalism is never going to get to Australia. I didn't realize, based on the news of this week, that it's been like this already for over a decade. It has. I, I did talk about it, they, the, the immigration from the islands, from Indonesia, from Malaysia, ongoing, not necessarily Islamists, but amongst them many Islamists. And they have had problems with the uh, with the threat of terror and uh, with some incidents for a long time. And they, you know, the governments there have been outspoken uh, about dealing with it. That it's has not been, uh, you know, the kind of quiet approach to it. Yeah, um, you know, the White House and I. I don't know if you ever think of this, but this came to my mind last night. There's no proper reaction to the beheadings. And I mentioned this because in Australia that was one of their goals, right, to find a random person and, again, do one of these, you know, international videos of a beheading, right? That was the, that was the goal of the group. Right. So the, the, in the White House, for instance, and I, I assume leadership in other democratic countries, there's it, it, it seems there's no effective response. And I don't just mean strategically. I mean symbolically. What is the president? I know there are a lot of critics of the president in this audience. But what is the president of the United States supposed to do? What is supposed to be the proper reaction when these madmen, or one in particular who we keep seeing in the videos, is frightening the entire world with these brutal acts? What would you like to see the President of the United States, you know, how, how should he be responding in a symbolic sense? It seems that no matter what he says, it's completely ineffective and nobody thinks that they can stop this. Well, I think the problem with the West is that their responses are always symbolic. I don't want symbolic responses. I want action. We could have, should have taken action a long time ago in Syria, and it doesn't mean having to put, put you know, boots on the ground, even though we, want, we already now have boots on the ground. Uh, we admit to 1,500 in Iraq. They're going to need more support. The answer is that we should have identified people at the very beginning. 
Now we're going to go give aid, and we have nobody in Syria who I think is a worthy recipient. It's going to be so hard to identify anybody with whom we can work. How did Congress? How did? I don't know how Congress fell for that. That's the first thing I thought of when I heard about aid to the rebels. Well, there's, been a, there's a lot of concern, and we we they want to do something, and this. You know, seems like a most reasonable approach, and it's why Congress, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, voted for it. And and I understand it, Nate. But you know that the beheadings are taking place in Gaza. They're taking place in Syria. They took place in Lebanon recently. It's becoming a a, a, a phenomenon around the world because they saw the success that ISIS had with it. That it rather than causing the revulsion that we react to it amongst young Muslims it became a rallying call it became a recruitment tool and there are just reports of Americans from Minnesota especially Somali families in the St. Paul Minnesota region boys and girls going to 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 the region they say that 15 to 20 young women and I know that they at Britain said 60 and there are perhaps 300 Western women who are fighting with ISIS, and, and most many of them are members of the Modesty Patrol or other uh, enforcement uh, operations. And this, these beheadings became uh, recognized as something that excited, that something that showed determination. And the, the way that they carried out with the guy standing there holding neck and using it to, to uh, make a statement, is uh, has become has gone viral and it becomes uh, an increasingly accepted practice that people now compete to who's beheaded more people. That that's what's unbelievable. We got we got to get a psychiatrist on on during this update one week to explain this phenomenon. Is it the violence? Is it the revolutionary aspect? What is it that this recruitment tool has been so effective in so many countries? Well, you have the you have preachers and imams who are preaching this who who support it who. Say that this is the force that is spreading the word of Islam. That they see, you know, the corruption in a lot of the Muslim countries. They see the, uh, the failures in a lot of the countries, and they're saying, "Here's a force. Look, they took on the West. They they took on Assad. They they uh, are on the ascendancy. They just took 21 Kurdish villages uh, in the last two days, and are, are attacking another city in uh, in Syria." And that the, the, the successes and the fact that the West attacks them and, and only enhances the image that they have and becomes more attractive to young people. As I re- uh, mentioned once on the air, that there were hundreds of young Frenchmen went to Syria and said they were Mohammed Mara fighters. They went, this is the guy who killed the three little children outside the Jewish school and the soldiers and the rabbi, um, and they were inspired by his action. But the way you give expression to it is to go there. They also recruit very widely, and you can't tell recruitment because often it's done by domestic residents. I know, but some of the, you mentioned Somalia, and certainly anybody with a certain background, we might be able to understand it. Unless Facebook's completely false, it's the regular American kids that are getting involved with it, which is so hard to believe. M- Muslims. Uh, it's not attracting, uh, except for some converts or, you know. Right, those pretty, are the exceptions. Uh, Far out people. It, it isn't attracting uh, general American uh, young people to the thing. They're troubled people, perhaps, but right. I, I wouldn't say that it has an appeal to, to broader audience. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Um, 
What do you, ha, may I share with you the campaign slogan of senatorial candidate Robert Ransdell in Kentucky? May I share with you his campaign slogan? Okay. With Jews, we lose. Right. What do you think? It rhymes, but, uh, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I know about it. I think they've uh, repealed it, and he's an he's a extremist candidate. And uh, Yeah, at this point, he's a write-in candidate. Right. It's a wrong-in candidate. But just the fact that, uh, I don't know, I mean, I know that, you know, we, we, we certainly have a history in this country of plenty of episodes and incidents, but I don't know, it's 2014, and you'd think that, you know, we've gotten past all this, and sure enough, a guy can get national attention and essentially been given the, uh, you know, the freedom of speech routine by media outlets you know in this day and age no i think he's been i mean he's been treat, being treated as uh, uh as an isolate case um uh, and a fringe uh, candidate but you're right the very fact that this becomes even feasible right uh, today but unfortunately and when i say it i know people say you know it's depressing it's scary to hear all of this yeah we're coming into rush on they yeah. start looking at the the fact that in France you have a doubling in numbers in Britain, a tripling of the numbers of anti-Semitic incidents. Correct, and it's coming to the U.S. even more. And it's here, and it's on our yeah. campuses, and we have... And the future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel. Uh, <laughs> at, at campus forums and other places where you hear the kind of anti-Israel stuff with no balance about the real facts, and, and, and much of the media feeds it, too. And the future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel. And did I mention that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel? You know, back to a second on this congressional vote. Um, last week you described for us essentially, unless I didn't get it right and believe me, it's possible with the way things are going these days and trying to keep track of everything in the Middle East, you basically described three sides, right? That was the conclusion we came to in Syria, that we always thought there's two sides to this, but essentially now there's three sides because you don't know who Assad is going to align himself with politically in his country, right? He won't align, align himself with any of those parties. He aligns himself with Hezbollah. So now when the U.S. says, okay, aid to the rebels, which of the three sides is that money going to? Uh, and I would say that there, there's much more than three sides. If you take a look just what's going on in the Golan, where al-Nusra, which is an al-Qaeda offshoot, if you remember, uh, was uh, al-Qaeda in, in, uh, in Syria, they control most of the crossings and most of the border area including some of the crossings between israel and syria and are increasing their presence there is is said to have individuals but they don't have a, a military presence there but the syrian army was routed uh, from that area then you have perhaps 30 40 different rebel groups plus you have uh isis controlling raqqa and the area now because they think the United States is going to bomb, they removed all of their fighters, families, and their offices and other things, and they move underground. They have the tunnels, they have facilities, you know, in hidden places. Uh, so they move them out of Raqqa, but out Raqqa is where the oil is and where they, which they are selling back to the Assad regime, which they're fighting to uh, through Kurdish middlemen, and they and it all goes out through Turkey. And when the U.S. has been pressuring Turkey to uh, to stop it, they haven't. And that, that's another subject. So, so when the U.S. Syria says itself, then you have the Free Syrian Army, which is right. Very so when when have. the U.S. announces the Syrian rebels are getting the money, who's getting it? Uh, they have to determine which groups they can work with. It's almost impossible. It's very hard, and because you know the, the the truth is, you have opposition outside with whom I've met, but they're not the ones fighting on the ground. The Free Syrian Army 
was our ally initially. It's weak. It hasn't produced. Uh, it produced very little. So now you have a conglomeration. In some cases, they've merged together. Many under ISIS, but we're not going to help ISIS and its affiliates. And therefore, we have to really carefully identify. Right. Because look how the arms have flown flowed now. You know, in the in the Golan, uh, that you know they took over the UN. The presence there, and they drew, and all the soldiers ran into Israel. Uh, so now you have these terrorists have UN uniforms, UN vehicles, UN weapons. So you're not going to know when somebody approaches and you see a guy in a UN uniform, whether it's a terrorist or it's a UN peacekeeper. That's why I'm telling you. I, that's why I was shocked that no prominent U.S. senator got up and simply said. What are we doing? Do we even know who this is going to go finance? Oh, they have said it. They, there were many who, who got up and expressed reservations. They they want to show that they support the president, and, and they want the president to take tougher action in in the instance. But I, I think this is something where American intelligence and others have to are playing a role, working with the parties on the ground to see, look, you know, we, we said we cleared it of, of chemical weapons, Syria. And, and they got them. Now they're fighting. No, they're finding uh, the Israelis say there are uh, rocket-propelled grenades, missile warheads, uh, bombs with uh, chemical weapons uh, on, on it, probably uh, sarin. But whatever gave and, us the insur- assurance that they that they had gotten rid of them? Right. That's a good question. And they admit, the Syrians admitted, that they had a, a research and development facility plus laboratories producing racin, which they had not disclosed before. And... Uh, and so after the world is, is convinced that everything is out of there, we're finding that they still have this, and they retained, retained the stockpiles of, of uh, chemical weapons. You know what I'm surprised about, by the way? Who has been more outspoken to the world about the situation with Iran and nuclear capability than the leaders of Israel, obviously you know, led by the prime minister? When it comes to ISIS... And its influence now in the Middle East, you would think that Israel would be more outspoken about what must be done in order to defeat them. And it's been relatively quiet on that issue. Well, because anything Israel says or does becomes a, vehicle, a tool for the other side against to mobilize people and say, you see, it's really a Zionist plot, it's the Israelis. And they say it all the time, by the way, about everything that goes on. So Israel has to be somewhat careful. Also, Israel doesn't have a presence on the ground. They do share intelligence with the United States and West because of satellites and others. And also because they understand that, as uh, al-Zawahiri said, it's Damascus first, then Jerusalem. This is a holy war. And the holy war for them means recreating. Their name was ISIL initially. That wasn't Lebanon. It was the Levant. And Levant includes all of what was then Palestine, meaning Israel, Jordan, uh, Syria, Lebanon. That's their goal, is to create a caliphate. And when they, when IS, now the Islamic State, really means the establishment of a caliphate in the region, that's their goal. And the president got criticized for using ISIL. And, if you know, on Israel's side, isn't it better that someone as high-profile him as him use that expression? Because, again... If people knew what it meant, it might be <laughs> It might be better, helpful. But <laughs> you know, you know, nobody really uh, knows, and and it, it should be explained because first they used to say it stands for Syria and Lebanon, and it didn't, and then it was it was uh, ISIL when it was Iraq and Syria and and uh, Iraq and Lebanon at Levant. Right. 
So then the transformation of the name, now it's the Syas because they want everything. <laughs> That's why if it's Damascus first and then Jerusalem, you would think that... But maybe you're right that in an outgoing public manner, there's no need to. I have to assume that Israel, through intelligence and through military presence, whatever that means, is taking whatever precautions possible on their own borders when it comes to ISIS. Because they know what you just said, that Jerusalem is, in fact, next. Well, certainly they bolstered their presence there greatly. The, 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 the groups operating like on Nusra don't want to start up with Israel yet, but there's every expectation that they could heat up this and Israel will be very strong in the response. There'll be no holding back. They also have to worry about the Lebanon border with, uh, with Hezbollah's huge presence with 100,000 missiles and with uh, the tunnels that they're looking for and at. Um, Israel is monitoring all of this. The intelligence is very extensive. Their physical presence there. Uh, and, and at the same time, they set up a field hospital to treat Syrians. Yeah. Three, almost 400 of them have come to Israeli hospitals. And yesterday, a leader of the Syrian opposition, who, who couldn't, who's outside of Syria now, went to visit some of the Syrians in the hospitals in Haifa, and he said publicly that Assad is slaughtering us and Israel is healing us. Unbelievable. Talk about a message for the new year. Um, by the way, you think there'll be a new airport in northern Israel? Is that an international airport? Is Israel going to have a second international airport in the near future? If uh, an international airport that we're talking about using the one in, in the south, but there is talk about developing one as an alternative. Yeah, I read about the Galil that they were thinking about. About the Galil, right. But so, it's, it's very hard because you need a lot of land to build. Uh, airports are huge, you know, when you come into the area of Ben-Gurion, you know, you drive for quite a while from right. this point. I just think it's uh, another, and again, great message for the last, uh, you know, weekly update of the year. I just think it's uh, it's unbelievable that Israel might be at the stage, just a small country, and sometimes we forget, might be at the stage where they need and would, you know, and would be able to grow even further. Imagine what it would do for the north of Israel if there was a second international airport. And you always point out that, you know, there's a lot of good news to share out there. And one of it is if you look at the last year, 5774, the growth in Israel in so many areas has been unbelievable. And you know that, that Malaysia and Indonesia, the biggest, uh, the biggest countries, Muslim countries, their trade is skyrocketing with Israel, even during the war. It didn't stop. It wasn't diminished at all. Uh, and that was the good news that Israel's economy was able to withstand uh, the pressures of this uh, latest conflict. But we're going to see much more efforts to about the boycott and uh, PA Abbas coming to New York this week to, to press uh, unilateral actions, whether it's the International Criminal Court, the threat of the International Criminal Court. Aye. But we'll use this vehicle to remind him that if he does that, he's the one who could end up being in the docket on charges of war crimes. He it was his partner. They, they play too much of a role in a lot of this stuff, so he better be wary about what he does. But the unilateral actions, which could cost him U.S. aid, um, and then he'll, he'll present himself as being the, the uh, victim of Israeli intransigence. And his goal is to isolate Israel globally and to increase pressure so he doesn't have to negotiate. He wants the U.N. to negotiate and to be the mediator, not the U.S., to, to deliver for him. Uh, so he doesn't have to make any concessions. Yeah, well, the only flaw with that argument that, you know, we'd be able to hold his feet to the fire is that he has, he has a lot of anti-Israel allies on his side, you know, who would be more than happy to uh, help him progress in this area of criminal uh, 
Well, it, there's one thing at the UN. There's another thing at the at the ICC, which has also had tendencies to be anti-Israel. Any UN agency virtually is is already stacked against Israel. Uh, but the question of their standing, do they have the right to bring it in the past? The court has said no. And uh, in fact, one of the key people in the court, who was on the court, uh, has now become, uh, has come to the other side in terms of the arguments he's put forward publicly uh, about it. So it's not a slam dunk for him. You talked about trade relations a moment ago uh, uh, with Israel, Malaysia, etc. Uh, someone told me, is it true that the Technion, and maybe it was a different technical institution in Israel, maybe it was not Technion, but there's a significant Asian population among the student body in a place like Technion? Absolutely. Which is unbelievable. Chinese students fight to come to Israel. There's a delegation from China there all, uh, almost every week. I am in touch with people in China, and they are uh, they all want to have a piece of Israel. You know, they bought um, into Teva, I think it was. Or, right. Yeah, one of those pharmaceuticals. And they right. bought into, but but they bought it. That was high profile. They bought right. into many other firms. And what do they want from Teva? They want their cows. Then it's not because they want the milk from the cows. They want the cows to teach, to learn, and to have the secret about how does Israel, why do Israeli cows produce so much more milk? And China's needs are endless. Uh, but they're also their creativity, their respect for Jews, the uh, the interest in Israel. And uh, when I was in China, and uh, there are organizations in Israel that work to promote the relationship between China and Israel, and they tell me that they have, uh, you know, 10 applicants for every slot that they can give somebody at a university in Israel. And there's, uh, you know, there are now cadres of Hebrew-speaking Chinese who have gone back to, to China and who maintain the ties. That's why there's a great deal of work in the high-tech area and other areas between China and Israel. Uh, that. Uh, and, and, of course, the expansion, the broad expansion of the trade with uh, India and the new prime minister of India, with whom, God willing, we will meet in the coming week, um, uh, who is extremely supportive and uh, appreciative of Israel. I told you, uh, I think I told you this, a suggestion of a friend of mine that China should take over Israel. All of a sudden, you'd see the Israeli military grow like crazy. <laughs> 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 but they will take them all back to China. <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe they'd want to fly the flag in the Middle East. Well, China, when they go into countries generally, is to remove the resources. Mm. And part of the reason you have such a backlash in, in Africa against them is because they buy huge swaths of land, produce food, but they don't leave it there for domestic production or even to make money domestically. It is They take it all back to China, and that creates uh, a lot of resentment. We're in these countries that need the food uh, as well. One of our listeners corrected that it was the Tanuva purchase that uh, right Tanuva right. that made the uh, right not Teva the, far- the cows right, right not the Teva farmers. But one and another is before I uh, turn to you for our Rosh Hashanah message because the brand new year of five seven seven five is upon us. So so. Um, uh, Angela Merkel goes to an anti-Semitism uh, a rally against anti-Semitism in Berlin and speaks. And I am told that it's not—it's not like here in the United States, where public officials and obviously someone as high-profile as her, you know, can get up at a rally like that and not be met with tremendous criticism. Uh, so on one end, we see obviously the problems that the Jewish communities of Europe are having right now. On the other end, we see to, the, to a large degree there are public officials in Europe willing to stand up. Well, she has been very supportive all along, and the fact is that not, that not only she, but the president of Germany, uh, and this is very rare, that the, that the two would be in one place at one time, and 
uh, made very strong statements. It was focusing on anti-Semitism, and they had five, six, seven thousand people showed up. Uh, that is remarkable. You have some other leaders who have spoken out against the anti-Semitism. Some of the people beginning to recognize the the price you pay for uh, uh, all of this. Uh, but more leaders have to speak out, and they have to act. They have to prosecute. They have to. They have the laws there are different than here with group libel, so you can prosecute. Less uh, different definition of freedom of speech. Right. And so the, her presence there was very significant. Uh, Russia Shana message as we wrap up the year. What would you like to see the rabbis discuss Thursday from the pulpit, Malcolm? If someone wants to give an important message to open people's eyes as to what's happening in this world of ours. What should the message be from our leaders this uh, coming Rosh Hashanah? Look, part of the purpose of uh, Rosh Hashanah is we commit ourselves to the coming year. And then during the Aseris Yimei Tshuva and Yom Kippur, we look to the last year and, and try to do Tshuva for what, uh, repent for what we did wrong. But Rosh Hashanah has a different content in the Tefillah where we don't have those elements. And I think that the, if, if I really had the opportunity to influence all the rabbis, and we have done, did something this, this week with briefings uh, by Frank Luntz, who just completed a study of the campuses in America and the, and the very disturbing results, uh, really shook up uh, the conference of presidents when he, he addressed them about the, and showed them the charts and the reaction, is to have the rabbi speak from the pulpit, and this means everybody, and give them the argument. Tell them what they have to go out and say. To charge them now, because we're going to face these challenges, get people to understand their responsibility, that each of them has an ability to influence and to make a difference. And if we're looking to the year ahead, not just to the past year, to think about how do we in this year meet that responsibility? How do we show, uh, because so many skills are future-oriented. If you look at the words, and really people don't just say them, but try to understand uh, the challenge it, it looks back but it also looks forward that the that this year more than ever we have to educate our young kids and that we have to to orient them and to tell them what the arguments are and that rabbis have pulpits in which to say to people don't fall into the traps and I, and this is for all rabbis across the board that to warn people about what the real issues are and why people have to be alert and that no one can say like it, when it comes to tzedakah, when it comes to anything else, that it's somebody else's responsibility, that, you know, they'll wait till somebody else does it. This is a time, of, and the challenges that we discuss now, and the many more that we have discussed then throughout the, the year, and people shouldn't say, oh, this is depressing to look at it. Jews have to face reality. Well, you just mentioned something about being depressed when you saw research results. Is that something the public's going to be uh, able to see in, in the near future? We're not going to publish it because we're not going to feed the enemy. But the uh, uh, those who work on campus, those who work in communities, all the leadership. I mean, can it be worse than we think the average college campus is now? I mean, most of us have a pretty negative impression about the attitude toward Israel on college campuses. And amongst young Jews, even on the... Even amongst this, young Jews. Uh, even uh, amongst um, young Jews. Uh, this is also so important. Um, and and even those who, who come from families that are committed and from even some with good Jewish educations, but the, but the schools are not equipping them, and especially those with high school students. And you know how long I've urged this 
Yep. Uh, but I would tell you that, that if we're doing introspection, we have to look at it as a cloud. We look at it not just in our personal circumstances, but we do it, uh, retrospection about the community. And this year, with all the challenges and opportunities, there is there is a lot of good news. There is a lot that we can be proud of and that we have to teach our kids to be proud to talk about. Look at all the discoveries and teach them about them, showing our roots in Israel for thousands of years, verified and re-verified and re-verified, and the and the Tanakh coming to life in these new new uh, excavations and discoveries. Because of the Kodesh Baruch Hu, God is sending us these signals. He just got to wake up to it and realize it. He's saying, look, I give you all these opportunities and giving you all these blessings and giving you all uh, of things that your grandparents and great-grandparents didn't have. Now show you're worthy of it. And I hope that people will at least take some time to think about it and to consider their responsibility, clown not just to themselves and to their families, which, of course, is primary, but so is it because we're all going to have the same fate. Take this opportunity to wish you and your family happy, healthy, and sweet New Year, Mr. Honline. I hope we have the chance to do this for another year together. God willing, and, and you shall I am, and we'll be able to celebrate there together. That uh, this, will, this will be the year, and... Uh, and if not, then we'll keep praying. <laughs> and we'll just keep going, Bezrat Hashem. <laughs> I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Next week's obviously Rosh Hashanah. Erev Yom Kippur will speak together. Two weeks from today, and there'll be a lot to cover for the end of September. Two weeks from today, uh, we will uh, reconvene for our weekly update.